Thank you very much, Brother Steve, and good morning, brethren. Great, uh, great to see you all again, and uh, great to have mixed company, our brethren from the United. Uh, I think that's wonderful, and I'm actually planning, my wife and I are planning to visit a United congregation at the end of the month when we're traveling. And I think that's uh, just wonderful that we're coming together as churches of God. Uh, we no longer have the luxury of division. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, by this shall all men know you, uh, that you love one another. And that's what God expects from us. And I think that when we understand the danger of being a Christian in this uh, postmodern world, uh, we don't have time for division. Uh, we have to love each other and support each other. And uh, speaking of supporting each other, I do want to thank you brethren for your prayers and uh, fastings and prayers of encouragement uh, for the debate uh, that I was recently engaged in. I was quite touched by the amount of support that I received from brethren uh, around the world. And um, what I'd say is I, I had two objectives uh, for the debate. Uh, one was to preach the gospel uh, to an audience that has never heard it. And I, I think that was just a wonderful opportunity to have and to have these, uh, and I will say about the Muslim community, they love to talk about God. Uh, after the debate, I was swarmed by these Muslims who wanted to talk more. For, for a good hour afterwards, they were engaging me, and they just were taking turns wanting to talk to me uh, about what I was speaking about during the debate. And I think that's wonderful. A lot of uh, people here in North America, if you stop them and you want to talk about God, they're not interested. Uh, but Muslims are interested. And uh, they're here, and they're here in increasing numbers, and we need to learn how to speak to them about God and about the gospel, which they have never heard. My second objective for the debate was to expose Islam as a false religion. And I think I did that, but when I, when I watched the uh, archive, I, I had mixed feelings. Uh, I think that I couldn't actually believe it. Uh, the, I had 10 minutes to refute the imam's arguments, and I missed the boat. I, I completely, I, I let his argument stand. I think he had three fundamental arguments that I should have addressed in that opportunity to refute. And I missed it. And I missed it, I think, for a number of reasons. Uh, the, the main reason was I was under this intense spotlight. I was standing right, right under this light. And you, you can see I don't have any protection. <laughs> so my head was burning. And I, I just had to back up and get in the shade. And I wasn't taking good notes. And so by the time it came round, I think about half an hour later for me to refute his arguments, my mind went blank, and I couldn't remember anything that he had said. And, and there were three arguments that I really should have addressed, and I just want to address them today because, you know, the purpose of a debate is not so much to win the debate. The purpose of a debate is for ideas to collide and for people to hear the collision of these ideas and then to think critically about what they've heard. And, and I think that's, that's really the key. And if you'll turn with me to um, Acts 17, we'll see that this is how the early church, specifically the Apostle Paul, this is how he preached the gospel, through the process of debate. If you look at Acts 17 and verse 2, it says, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. That, that word reasoned is dialogomai, and it's where we get our word dialogue, but it actually means to dispute. It means to debate. It's when two people, dia, logos, logical reasoning and disputing, trying to get to the truth of a matter. It also means to, uh, to say thoroughly. So it means that each side gets to have their say thoroughly, without being cut off. And this is what Paul did. And you'll notice here that it's for three Sabbath days. And I think as I read this and think about it, debates should not be one and done. Debates should be a series. So that whatever I say in this session, you can go and fact check, and then hold me accountable the next time we meet. And so you saw when Paul was with, in Berea, the Bereans would listen and then they would search the scriptures to see if these things are so. They could fact check him. So I think in a one session, I can say anything, the imam can say anything, and then we leave. But if he knew that he's coming back the following week, and anything that he said will be fact checked and then brought up again, then we have to be more careful. 
and the brethren, the people who are listening can go and come back and ask their questions. So Paul would do this for three Sabbath days. The other thing that's interesting about this word dialogamai is it's in the middle voice. And the middle voice is part of Greek grammar. It implies that this speaker is involved, very, very intimately connected to the outcome of the action. So when he's disputing, he's emotionally engaged in the outcome of his dispute. That's, that's how, what it shows from the middle voice. In verse 3, what, what is he disputing? What is he arguing with the Jews over? Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is the Messiah. That was the content of his debating. Now, if you drop down to verse 17 of the same chapter, it shows, therefore, he disputed. It's the same word, dialogamai. Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons. So that's on the, on the Sabbath. And then daily in the marketplace, he was disputing with the Greek philosophers. So Paul was a debater. And it was this collision of ideas that spread the gospel, that turned people to Christ, because they could hear the collision of ideas and see the truth stand in the presence of false teachings. And if you just go to chapter 19, and verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly, boldly, for the space of three months. So it's not one and done. It's like, go and search the scriptures, and then let's come back again next Sabbath. Go and search the scriptures, let's come back again next Sabbath. Last Sabbath you said this, well, let's look at the Torah, let's see what it says. So it's over the space of three months he's having these debates, and he's doing it boldly, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so this was Paul's approach to preaching the gospel, and he was extremely effective, turning all of Asia uh, to, to the gospel through this approach. So... You know, I'm no Paul, but I think this is something we can learn from, that it's our duty to preach the gospel, to preach Christ, to preach the kingdom of God, and to do it boldly, and to allow for ideas to collide in such a way that people can go and search for themselves, and maybe question things that they have taken for granted. You know, these Muslims, from the moment they're born, it's whispered into their ear that there's no God except Allah, and Muhammad is his, his last messenger. And then all their lives, this is all they've heard. And they're told things about the Bible without ever opening the Bible. And so here they are. And we have an opportunity to bring the gospel to them, flawed as we are. Flawed as, I mean, when I look at the debate, I'm actually kicking myself. And I spent the first week kicking my, first I was kicking myself, then I was punching myself. And, uh, but you know what? They've invited me back. In fact, somebody senior to the imam that debated has written to me to say, would I come and debate again? So I'll, I'll speak to my fellow ministers, uh, but the answer, I think, is yes, I would be glad to. Um, and to do it in this way, where it's done over time. Let's do it as a series. And I think if we had, had, had we had done that, you know, the 150 people in the audience, um, the majority of whom were Muslim, not only would they have come back, they would have brought friends. So what I want to do today, though, is revisit a couple or three of the fundamental arguments that the imam had that I allowed to go unchecked. Uh, but I want to do it here, not so much to debate the imam or to negate what the imam taught, but to show us just how precious the truth of the Bible is. That again, this collision of ideas is a wonderful opportunity because it just, we might take the truth for granted. But when we see that people don't understand, it allows us to realize just how awesome and profound this truth is. So his first point that I want to address, and I can't believe I, I, I left it unchecked, was he said that the Bible is problematic. You know, what is the Bible? How many books are in the Bible? Are there 66? Are there 39? Are there 85? What, what is the Bible? And I think for a Muslim, especially a Muslim scholar, to raise this as an issue, it's a bit ridiculous. Repeatedly, the Quran refers to Jews and Christians as people of the book. Because the Arabs, did, they were an illiterate culture. It was an oral culture. 
they had no scriptures. But the Jews and Christians, we had scriptures. And so we were referred to as the people of the book. Well, obviously, Allah regards our book and sees us as people of the book. So whatever the book was when Muhammad was walking the earth, that's the Bible. And for an imam to say, we don't know what the Bible is, well, then the Quran goes out the window because the Quran is authorized by the people of the book. In fact, Muhammad, after receiving more than 50% of the Quran, still doubted whether or not he was a prophet. And so he received this revelation in the Quran, chapter 10, verse 94. And Allah says to Muhammad, so if you are in doubt, O Muhammad, about that which we have revealed to you, he's received half of the Quran already, and he's still wondering if he's a prophet. And so Allah says this to him, if you're in doubt, O Muhammad, about that which we have revealed to you, then ask those who have been reading the scripture before you. The truth has certainly come to you from your Lord, so never be among the doubters. So Muhammad is to come to the Christians and Jews and to verify with our scriptures his prophethood. So, so there's no Quran without the Bible. Now, 600 years before Muhammad, Jesus walked the earth. And when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't say to the Jews, what have you done with the scriptures? He taught from the scriptures. So whatever the scriptures were when Jesus walked the earth, we can accept that as the Bible. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24. And this is after his resurrection in verse 25. So while before his crucifixion, he was in the Sabbath, the synagogue, every, uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, every, every Sabbath, every week. That was his custom. And he would teach them from the scriptures. So he, he didn't panic over what they had as the scriptures. He acknowledged the scriptures. And now in verse 25 of Luke 24, he says, Then he said unto them, O fools, they didn't know why Christ had to, to be crucified. And he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So they have the scriptures of the prophets, but they don't believe what the prophets have written. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, if you read the prophets correctly, you would understand the crucifixion was what was prophesied. It's central to the story of Israel and the redemption of Israel. And verse 27, beginning at Moses, that's the Torah, the first five books, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then if you drop down to verse 44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So Christ acknowledged the, the, the scriptures. And so we, we can agree that the Old Testament scriptures that Christ read from and taught from, that's the Bible. Now, the New Testament is so intimately and intricately connected with the Old Testament that that's the proof of the New Testament. But let's put the New Testament aside. And let's just have the Old Testament because Christ taught from the Old Testament. And you, Imam, pick any book and we'll take that single book and destroy Islam. Because Allah could never author any book of the Bible. So pick any book you're comfortable with and we'll teach just from that book and show that Allah is not the author of that book. So clearly, uh, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures are the foundation. The second point, which I, I did address but I really didn't drive home, was that Allah is just so forgiving that there's no need for blood to be shed. That if you're sincere and you, for, you, you repent, Allah will just forgive you. And I brought up that that's very arbitrary, that Allah is very arbitrary. And he presents this arbitrariness as kindness. Well, it's not kindness. It's torture. It's torture. Abu Bakr, who was the first companion of the Prophet Muhammad, I shouldn't say that, the Islamic Prophet Muhammad, and his most faithful follower, actually said, if I had one foot in paradise and one foot in the grave, 
I would still fear the deception of Allah. Think about that. This is the main companion, the first caliph in Islam. And he said, if I had one foot in the grave and one foot was actually in paradise, I would still fear the deception of Allah. Muhammad himself said, I don't know what my fate is with Allah. This is why we have terrorism. This arbitrary kindness of Allah also leads to arbitrary punishment. You can read in the Quran where Allah was so angry with the Jews for fishing on the Sabbath that he turned them into apes and pigs. That Jews, Allah turned them into apes and pigs. Where do you find that in Deuteronomy? Where, where in the terms and conditions does God say, if you break my Sabbath, I'll turn you into a monkey? Yahweh keeps his word. And the Christian can have peace with God because he's not arbitrary. You just you read the law, and it's impossible for God to act against his law. So when we come under the blood of Christ, we have peace. It's impossible for God to lie. The Muslim has no peace. If this was a Muslim audience, all of us, including myself, would be full of anxiety. We don't know what Allah will do to us when we die. In fact, the Quran says that every Muslim must go through hell first. And then Allah picks and chooses who he pulls out of hell to put into paradise. So Muslims are full of anxiety. And if you have a young person who has lived a sinful life and then decides, you know what, I'm going to get serious about my religion. And then they start reading the Quran. The only way out is to blow yourself up. Because when you blow yourself up and you're martyred for Allah, you go straight to paradise. So this arbitrariness that's presented as kindness, it's torture. And it creates anxiety. Compare that to Romans, Romans 3. You know, you have these young, and it's always young Muslims. They, I think they have to ask themselves, why is it always the youth that are martyring ourselves? Why don't we see any old men with long beards blowing themselves up? And these young people, when they blow themselves up, I'm sorry to say this, but they take tin foil and they wrap their private parts because they want to preserve that. Because that's the promise of Allah. That in paradise, non-stop sex. Isn't it sad? Compare this to Romans 3. Romans 3. You're, you're a young person. You've sinned. You realize that God is real. You're going to face him one day. You're going to face judgment with God. You want to get serious about your religion. You turn to Romans 3. What do you do? You've sinned. Verse 23. All have sinned. You're no different than anybody else. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is what we want to say to our Muslim brothers and sisters. Everybody has sinned. And everybody has come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This, this is where we have peace, that Christ is presented repeatedly in the scriptures as our propitiation, that the wrath of God is quelled through the propitiation of Christ. He is our Passover, and that's what begins the whole process of salvation. So once you get serious about your religion, and you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, God is no longer angry. You have peace. And now what you can do is work on your character, work on the transformation of your heart, work on becoming a good person, work on becoming like Christ. The Muslim, decades after being a Muslim, all your life being a Muslim, your heart doesn't change. Islam does nothing to reform the heart. And so you go through these rituals, doesn't change your heart. Now, the main point that I want to address that the Imam brought up that I didn't address was that the God concept in Islam is clear, consistent, and common sense. And he explained how God is one. And all nations understand this concept because it's common sense. And as I listened to him, I actually did think this, he sounded like a Greek philosopher. It, it sounded like philosophy. Let's talk about the God concept. 
And I think at one, point, at, at one point during the debate, I said that God is not a concept. He's not an essence. He's a person. But I, I should have addressed it more succinctly and more precisely. Because the fact that he sounded like a Greek philosopher is not accidental. There's a, we can trace exactly why. Muhammad, the, the Bible doesn't speak of Christians. Sorry, the Quran doesn't speak of Christians. It speaks of Nasara, al-Nasara. Nasara were a sect of Christians that went into Arabia because they were heretics. They were Gnostic Christians. They, were, they believed in Gnosticism. And they fled Rome, and they went into Arabia. So Muhammad's wife, Khadija, his, her cousin, Warqa ibn Nafil, who actually was studying these scriptures and translating them into Arabic, and was the one who confirmed for Muhammad that he was a prophet. And Muhammad's slave, who he adopted later as a son, uh, called, uh, I think his name was uh, Zayed. I think it was uh, Zayed. Um, all of these were Nasara. All of them were Gnostics. These Arab Gnostics believed that God could not become flesh. So Jesus was the son of God, but he wasn't God. They called him Isa, which is why Muslims call Jesus Isa, because the Gnostics call him Isa. They believed that on the cross, Jesus was swapped on the cross, and someone else died in his place, and Jesus didn't die. So all of these concepts cascade into Islam because Muhammad learned his Christianity from these people. And you can read the Quran from cover to cover. It does not understand at all what's in the New Testament. That's why when I presented the gospel to the imam, he was floored. Never heard any of these concepts before. But they're fundamental to the New Testament. Islam or Muhammad learned Christianity from the Nasara. That's why uh, in the Middle East now, the ISIS soldiers, uh, if you're a Christian, they put an N on your door. They don't put a C, they put an N to say you're Nasara because that's their understanding of Christianity. Now, the Gnostic concept of Christianity comes from a philosopher called Plotinus. Plotinus was a Neoplatonist. So the whole, we can divide the world into three eras, pre-modern, pre-modernism, modernism, and post-modernism where we are today. Pre-modernism was just this belief in the mystery of God, and all pre-modernists believe in God or a god. That's the sort of the primitive world. The explanation for everything is God or the gods. Modernism was more about philosophy and science and reason. Let's think this through. And that began with the Greek philosophers who just sort of burst onto the scene and started to reject the Greek pantheon of gods and said, no, there must be a deeper explanation for reality. And so the first one was Pythagoras. And he came up, and I think you've heard the Pythagorean theorem, uh, which he actually got from the Egyptians. So they would travel all over the world to try to solve life's mysteries. And he spent a lot of time in Egypt. And the whole concept of the pyramids requires understanding of the Pythagorean theorem to build pyramids. So he brought it to Greece and then took credit for this knowledge. But he was really a philosopher and a mathematician and a musician. And to him, the number one was the explanation for everything. And so for him, God is one. One is the fundamental truth of reality. From him, then, it cascaded down until we get to Socrates, who was sort of the big champion thinker. His student was Plato. Plato's student was Aristotle. And then Aristotle's student was Alexander the Great. And by the time this came to Alexander the Great, he was so amazed by this Greek philosophical thinking that he was determined to take it to the whole world. And that's what he did. He burst out of Greece and just conquered the known world to bring Greek philosophy to the known world. So Greek philosophy permeates everything. Okay? Then we had Christianity come on the scene. And post-Christianity, or the arrival of Christianity, came Plotinus, who's considered a Neoplatonist. And what he did was combine, combine Plato and Aristotle with Christianity. And this is how Platonic thinking enters Christianity. And fundamental to Greek philosophy is that matter is evil and spirit is good. 
And so we have this spirit inside us, which is good, but we're trapped in a material body, in a material world. And when we die, this spirit is released and it goes back into the goodness. This is fundamental Greek philosophy. If you listen to Plotinus, oh, sorry, sorry, I was saying that, and then we're in postmodernism now. Postmodernism, which really began in the 60s, is a philosophy that says nothing is true. So, pre modernism, the gods are truth, and we, we're just subjected to them. Modernism, philosophy, science, reason gets the truth. Postmodernism, there is no truth. So, we can make up our own truth. And we're being run today by postmodernists who don't believe in anything, and, and therefore who need to destroy everything so that they can rebuild. And so that's what the governments are doing today. They're just, that's why we're inviting Islam and giving them a free pass in North American society or Western society is to destroy Judeo-Christian values. Who are you to say Judeo-Christian values are true? And the best opponent to that, or the strongest opponent to that, is Islam. So we're going to bring Islam over here to root out Christianity out of our value system. And then when we're done with them, then we'll just get rid of them. They don't know what they're dealing with. They think Muslims are stupid and that you can just put them on a leash and drag them around. They have no idea what they're playing with. But in any case, that's the postmodernist uh, agenda. It, what Islam is doing now is they have the conviction of pre-modernism. So they're, they're worshipping the moon god, which is Nimrod, and that's all pre-modernism. But they defend it with modernism and Greek philosophy. And so Plotinus and this concept that God is one and being able to reason with it philosophically, this is coming from Plotinus. And they don't accept uh, postmodernism. And if you, can just, if you were to look up uh, the one, uh, how, how uh, Plotinus defines the one, it's, it's the one is just so other. He's so profound. He's so powerful. His will is ir irresistible. This is Islam. And this is what crept into Christianity, uh, presented itself as Gnosticism. And this is the Christianity that Muhammad was exposed to. And it's not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. If we look now at the God of the Bible and how he sees matter, this is profound. This is the fundamental difference between the, the one and Yahweh. How they see matter and the implications of their perspective on matter. Turn with me to Genesis 1. At the very beginning of the Bible, with the creation process, Genesis 1 and verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he had made. So he's, he's finished recreating six days, and he's looking at everything. And God saw everything, all of this matter, and behold, matter was very good. This is God's perspective of matter. It's not evil. It's very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And then immediately after that, he rests. And he fellowships with man. And he enjoys the matter. He enjoys it. Chapter 2 and verse 7. Not only does he enjoy the matter, this is how he regards the matter. Chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth. This is, this is God's regard for the earth, that he's going to make a model of himself out of the earth. I don't think this God sees the earth as evil. He's going to make a replica of himself out of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Now, to just, and later on you'll see that uh, God walked with man in the garden in the cool of the day. That this God is happy to come into his creation. So this, they're, they're struggling with Jesus being God. This, the, whole, the whole debate is really, can, can God be a man? Would, would the great, the one, 
who's so other would he come into his creation? Well, the God of the Bible does this and does it repeatedly. Look at chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre. So not only did he appear to Adam in the garden, now he's appearing to Abraham. He's happy to participate in his creation. He does not see matter as evil. He appeared to Abraham in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, uh, in verse 2, and he lifted up his eyes, this is Abraham, and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. One of these is the Lord. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from your servant. A little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort you your hearts after you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes upon the earth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So the Lord comes into his creation with two angels. And he enjoys the creation. And he enjoys a meal. He doesn't see matter as evil. He's quite happy to participate in the earth. And then if we look at Genesis 28. And verse 15. Where God now says to Jacob, And behold, I am with you. And I will keep you in all the places where you go and will bring you again into this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to you of. And Jacob awoke out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't realize it. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he realized that God's presence was in the earth. And so he called that place Bethel, the house of God. Later we know that he actually wrestled with God. And he wouldn't let God go until God blessed him. And that's how he became Israel. Look at Exodus 24. Exodus 24 and verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So again, he comes and he participates with man. Look at Exodus 40. Exodus 40, and verse 33. This is now coming to the end of the building of the tabernacle. And verse 33, And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar. It was a big, big project. And set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. So after all of this effort, the tabernacle has now been built. And then verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God dwelled, he tabernacled with man. He became Israel's neighbor. God, God moved in and dwelt with Israel. The, Lord, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's how Exodus ends. And immediately after Exodus, Moses writes Levit Leviticus which is all about holy living. When God is your neighbor, here's how you have to live. And here's how you have to deal with sin when God is in your presence. So the whole book of Leviticus is all about how to, how to dwell with God. 
when he moves into the tabernacle. So we shouldn't have any issue with Jesus as God, as the Lord, becoming a man and coming into his creation. Matter is not evil to him. He enjoys matter. He thinks matter is very, very good. He looked at all of it and said, this is very good. Let's now ask the question, and, and I could go on. I could look at Ezekiel, when he presented himself to Ezekiel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he came and he saved them. Repeatedly, he comes into the creation. Now, why is it so unclear that Jesus is God? That Jesus Christ is God, and he came into the creation. Why? Well, Jesus made it unclear, and there was a purpose for that. So let's look at that. Let's begin in John. John 10 and verse 24. And we're just going to go back and forth between some of the Gospels here. John 10, 24 then came the Jews round about him. So they were curious. And so they surrounded him. And they said to him, how long do you make us to doubt? How, how long is this going to go on? Like, just tell us. If you be the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. So they wanted to know. So he's acting in a certain way that they wondered, could you be the Messiah? Why are you, why are you leaving us in doubt? Just tell us. Now look at, Mark, uh, look at Luke 4. Luke 4, and in verse 41, Christ is performing some incredible miracles here. And in verse 41, the devils also came out of many. So not a few. Many people were relieved of demon possession through Christ's healing hands. So the devils came out of many, crying out and saying, You are Messiah, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak for they knew that he was Messiah. So the devils knew, and Christ suffered them not to speak. The Jews wanted to know, but they, he kept them guessing. Why? Let's go to Mark 1. Again, just to reinforce what Luke wrote, Mark 1 and verse 34, and he healed many that were sick of different diseases, and he cast out many devils, but he did not allow the devils to speak because they knew him. So something is going on here. Something is going on where Christ will not say who he is, and he will not permit the devils who know who he is to speak. Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Uh, Matthew recounts a very interesting experience that the disciples had with Christ. Matthew 8 and verse 23, when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. So they're going to sea. So he goes into the ship and his disciples come with him. And behold, so now they're at sea for a while, in the process of time, there arose a great storm in the sea insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. So when you're letting in water, all lives are now at risk. So this is serious business. It's a big storm. The ship is letting in water. But he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. We're about to drown. Wake up, Lord, save us. And he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? So there's something that they should have known. There's something that they should have believed by now. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled. What manner of man is this? For the answer to this question, who is it that can command the wind and calm the sea in the middle of this huge storm? We go to Psalm 107. 
we go to Psalm 107. Matthew is writing in a way to echo the scripture that David wrote in Psalm 107. And you know, the Muslims, they think that they accept the Psalms. They think the Psalms are just these sort of lovely hymns that we just sing pleasant, pleasantries to each other. The Psalms are powerful scriptures, full of prophecy that completely negates Islam. But here, we're saying, who is this man that the winds and the sea obey him? Who could he be? Psalm 107. So they're in the sea, they're in the ship, in the middle of a storm, and he rebukes them and says, you little, have little faith. And then he rebukes the wind and the sea. Psalm 107, verse 23. They that go down to the sea in ships, as the disciples did, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts the waves thereof. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths, their soul is melted because of trouble. That is, these sailors are in trouble and they're, they're, they think they're going to die. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunk men. If you were to see them on the ship, you'd think they're drunk. They're just staggering from the storm. And are at their wit's end. Master, save us because we are perishing and we're at our wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. They woke him. Master, save us, for we perish. They cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He makes the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he brings them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him, that is Christ, also in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So this was a powerful lesson for these disciples. When they're asking, what manner of man is this? And then they're searching the scriptures. Let's now go to Mark 8. And as you know, if we followed this through, there's these different miracles, and, and the, the disciples are witnessing all of this. But Christ is not saying who he is. He never says, I am the Son of God. I am, I am Emmanuel, God with you. He wants the disciples to work this out on their own. Mark 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples. So they're on their way here. And now he turns to them and says, so after all of these miracles... And he's forbidden the demons to identify him. He's just with the disciples performing these miracles. He asked them, who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Then he says to them, okay, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Messiah. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. So clearly, Christ had an agenda. People mustn't know. He wanted the disciples to work it out themselves, which they did. And as soon as they worked it out, he commanded them, don't tell anybody. Why? Verse 31. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This is necessary. So you cannot circumvent this process. If you tip off the chief priests to who I am, that could risk this whole process being circumvented. They need to work this out for themselves. And I'm just going to come and preach the truth of the scriptures, and then they're going to act, and it's necessary. The, the, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. So you know who I am. Don't tell anybody. I need to go to Jerusalem, and this has to happen. Now, does he finally say who he is? Mark 14. When they have now committed themselves to crucifying him, then he reveals who he is. Mark 14. Mark 14 and verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the middle 
and asked Jesus, saying, Are you not going to answer? What is it which these witnesses, which these witness against you? But he held his peace, and he answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God? He wants to know, like, are you going to answer? Now, Christ answers. Are you the Son of God? Verse 62. Jesus said, I am. In the Greek, ego emi. In the Hebrew, Yahweh. I am. I am. Not only did he say, I am, he goes further to drive the point home. He says this, I am. On top of that, you shall see, he calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel. You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. Whoa. So you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. They know exactly which scripture he's referring to. So how do they react? Because this, this means, I am God. I am God. So when they hear this man say this, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what need we any further witness, witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. This man thinks he's God. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Guilty of death because of the scripture that he quoted, which is Daniel 7. Let's go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 9, where Daniel writes what he saw. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. So this is speaking of Gentile thrones. So Daniel sees these beast powers. And a beast is any political empire that subjugates the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel are the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of Israel is to rule the whole earth. But these beast powers, they usurp God's authority. And they take authority onto themselves and they subjugate Israel. And that's why they're referred to as beasts, because they consume Israel. So he sees the thrones taken from these beast powers, and the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, he sat, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. So this is God the Father. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, this is the Antichrist, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, which was not theirs, it's to be given to Israel. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, another one. So there's the Ancient of Days, but then Daniel sees another one, one like the Son of Man. This is who Christ identified himself as, the Son of Man. He came with the clouds of heaven. That's why Christ said, you'll see me coming with the clouds of heaven. I am the Son of Man. He came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. So we have two God beings here that the Jews have to reconcile. One is the Father, the Ancient of Days. The other is the Son of Man who comes to him. And when he comes to him, they brought him near before him. In verse 14, there was given to this one, the Son of Man. The Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. That's what Christ is saying to the Jews. You're going to see me coming back with the clouds of heaven, and all dominion will be given to me, all glory will be given to me, the kingdom will be given to me, that all people, nations, and languages should serve me. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. 
And this is when he restores now Israel to their rightful position. Let's go back now to John 10 where we began. When the Jews asked Christ, if you be the Christ, tell us plainly. And he actually told them. But they were not able to receive it. Look what he said in John 10, in the same passage. John 10 and verse 30. If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 30. I and my Father are one. The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, two different beings, but they're one. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, Many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, and because that you, being a man, make yourself God. So they understood what he was saying. Jesus answered, Is it, Isn't it written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say you of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme because I said I'm the Son of God? Christ was quoting Psalm 82. Let's go to Psalm 82 to see what the psalmist wrote that Christ was quoting, saying the, the scripture says you are gods. So if the scripture says you're gods, am I blaspheming because I say I'm the Son of God? And God sent me into the earth and sanctified me to do this mission? Psalm 82, speaking to Israel, the scripture says, I have said, you are gods. The scripture cannot be broken. You are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. That's who you are. You need to know who you are. All of you, Israel, are children of the Most High. And the church being grafted into Israel, we are all children of the Most High. You are gods. And the scripture cannot be broken. But you shall die like men. In other words, you must be born again. You're gods, but you must be born again. You must die like men and then be born into God's family. And fall like one of the princes. And Christ led the way. He was the son of God and he died like a man. And then he was resurrected and born again and he led the way. I said, the scripture says, you are gods. Let's conclude, brethren. A couple of scriptures. The first one is going to be in Job, Job 38. Why this matters has to do with our destiny. If we see God as this other, he's so other, and spirit is good and, and matter is evil, then of course we have to believe in heaven. Of course, because matter is evil. So when we die, this spirit is released and it goes to heaven, where it goes back to goodness. Well, every false religion has a problem. It's problematic, the size of the universe. You see, in Muhammad's day, he thought the earth was flat. And the Quran says that the sun sets in a pool of muddy water. And they, he, he, th he thought that Alexander the Great was a prophet of God. And Alexander the Great went to where the sun sets in a pool of muddy water. So, you know, clearly, living in the desert with no knowledge of science, you would believe the earth is flat. Well, the earth is part of the universe. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, they estimate has 100 billion stars. Each star is a sun, and each sun has planets orbiting it. So our galaxy is massive. They estimate that our galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies. So our galaxy has 100 billion stars, and there are 100 billion galaxies. Not only that, it's expanding. It's getting bigger. Can any false religion explain why the universe exists? Only the Bible can. Only the Bible can. The earth is matter. And God loves the earth. And he loves to participate in the earth. 
because it's part of the universe. And our destiny is not to be, you know, drinking wine, eating fruit, and having nonstop sex. This is, you know, self-interest. This is the appeal that Satan made to Eve. Oh, this will make you wise. This will make you feel good. I think any of us here who've had an all-inclusive resort where you have all you can eat, you know, after three days of that kind of pleasure, you've had enough. Like, <laughs> I want to go home and do some work, right? What's ahead of us is an eternity of achievement. I mean, you could give me, I would hate it, it's hell. If you had 72 women that you just have nonstop sex with, we're not, you go to Hollywood, where people have whatever they want, they're all in psychiatrist's offices. Is it true? What gives us pleasure is achievement and relationship. To have a true relationship with one person, that's where fulfillment comes from. To have achievement, that's where fulfillment comes from. Satan is deceiving our Muslim brothers and sisters. Look at Job 38. Job 38 and verse 4. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars, that's the angels, this is before mankind was even created. When the angels sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So when matter was created, when the universe was created, the angels sang for joy. They, couldn't, they rejoiced over the creation of matter. Our existence now as physical human beings, it's temporary. It's temporary. We're not, this is not an eternal state. This is a temporary chapter in the life of the universe. When we are God beings, we have a whole universe out there to create and manipulate and participate in. That's why it's so important for us to understand that God is happy to come into the earth. Because the earth is just part of the universe. And whether God is where he is now, in the heavens, or here on earth, it's still the universe. Look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 3, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. God is happy to dwell with men. When Jesus was on earth, he was happy to call human beings his friends. We are made in the image of God. That's why, you know, what the Muslim community is doing, the devout Muslims, chopping off people's heads, chopping off hands. We are made in the image of God. This is coming from the devil. The devil hates what God has done. And they need, we need to open their eyes to the truth. God is coming to dwell with man. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God is going to come to earth. He's going to dwell in Jerusalem. And the earth is just part of the universe. It's just part of the universe. We're going to, we're, the universe is just expanding. It's there for us. Let's conclude in Romans 8. So, you know, the debates are not just for the Muslim community or the traditional Christian community. Whoever we're debating, it's not just to win a debate. It's for ideas to collide and for falsehood to be exposed and for truth to be exposed. And as we do this, we have the truth. What it should do is refine and sharpen our understanding of the truth and deepen our appreciation for it. Let's conclude in Romans 8. And as I say these words, brethren, Please deeply appreciate the profound truth that God has brought us into. Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Everything was created for Christ, by Christ and for Christ. And we're going to inherit it with him, the whole universe. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation, the whole universe, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity. Nobody understands it right now. Not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. There's a future, there's a vision. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole universe groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. We serve a God. We serve a God that thinks matter is beautiful and that thinks you're beautiful and that is happy to call you his friend and dwell with you forever. Amen?